Dale's good to have the, the combo back. Always. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians. We're back to Colossians. Chapter 3, verse number 18. We come back now to this very practical section of the book of Colossians and the matter of Christian living. In fact, today, what we're going to study is very similar to some passages we find in Ephesians 5 and 6, and you're probably going to be familiar with some of these uh, almost word for word in some cases. But in the first 17 verses of this third chapter of Colossians, Paul has been discussing the character of the individual Christian. And now what he's going to do as we start in these verses today is he's going to talk about how the Christian is to live in this world. I want you to remember the phrase that we learned about back in verse 10. Remember that phrase, the new self. Uh, in other translations, the new man. This next section is about how the new man approaches this world that we live in and specifically in relation to other people. And where I want to start is by recognizing that the major problem in the world really is very simple and easy to analyze. The major problem in the world is people. I mean, would you really want to argue with me about that? If we could just get rid of the people... We get rid of the problems. And the major problem with people is this. People can't get along with other people. The inability of man to get along with his fellow man is the number one problem in our society and in any society. In our world, you just track it through world history if you want to. From brothers and sisters who have sibling rivalries and families and throughout every kind of relationship that you can think of and all the way up to the most major kinds that oftentimes eventually end up in international war as we continue to see in our day. But it all stems from the same basic problem. People can't get along with other people. But you know what? Christianity is able to do something about that. Christianity not only will do something about an individual, but also it enables that individual the capacity 
to do something about the people around them in a very positive way. And we're going to talk about that. One of the smart guys on the commentaries named Waldo Beach said, man can be characterized by three words. The first word is enemy. You may have heard of that word. It just simply means no norms. Without norms or standards or rules, what he's getting at is that man governs his own good by pleasure. That's how I lived until I was saved. Enemy. Secondly, he says man suffers from the problem of anonymity. Anonymity asks the question, who am I? The natural man has no sense of being. He has no true sense of, of meaning or purpose in his life. When you, when you see people out there who are quote unquote seeking, they're not seeking after the God of the Bible because what does the Bible say in Romans? No man seeks after God, but he is seeking for meaning. He is seeking for purpose. And then the third word that describes man, Beach says, is alienation. And that defines the fact that man is basically separated. He exists in a world where everybody is selfish. Now, I can give you some other words that match these that are not the big fancy words. You ready for them? Immorality, emptiness, and loneliness. Okay? Those three things sum up the problem of the natural man. He is immoral. He is empty in himself. You've heard it said that God-shaped vacuum in his heart. And he is lonely. Because of his inability to truly give himself to other people. Even in a marriage relationship oftentimes. And the root basic problem of all of that is because he is cut off from God. And what happens when a person is cut off from God, he has no standard. He really has no true conception of right and wrong. And therefore, he has no true concept of self-worth because in a sense, he doesn't know when he's good or bad, philosophically speaking anyway, from a big picture perspective. And because he doesn't know God, he's anonymous. You know why I say that? Because in his natural condition, he really has nothing to hold on to. He has no anchor like we do. He has no being to give identity to his being because he's cut off from the supreme being. And then thirdly, because he doesn't know God, he suffers from a very selfish loneliness. One writer put it, he has cosmic loneliness. And when a person lives with a no standard kind of immorality as I once did and he lives with the kind of anonymity that gives him emptiness and that often leads to major drug and alcohol abuse as it did in my life and makes him lonely 
oftentimes soon, he starts to look at everybody around him as against him. Everybody steals his happiness. They infringe upon his potential of what he can truly be. And this makes him even more selfish. Which then makes for more alienation. And then he just can't get along with anybody. You ever met anybody like that? Just can't get along with anybody. And people who can't get along with other people cause problems. Remember what we learned in James from where come wars and fightings among you. They come out of your lust, that war in your members you lust and you do not have. You kill and desire to have and you can't obtain. You fight and war yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask improperly that you may consume it on your lust. You adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So there, the, the picture is painted of the man who is alienated from God, who then alienates himself from everybody else. It's a bleak picture. A man who is immoral because he sets his own standard and therefore alienates himself from other people who have different standards. But one of the greatest things about being a Christian is that none of those three things need ever exist in our lives. Not for one moment. Because when you become a Christian, immediately you have a standard. When you become a believer, immediately the highest standard, the Word of God becomes your standard. And secondly, you immediately have an identity. You don't have anonymity anymore. You know who you are. You are a child of God. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And your identity is a sinner saved by grace who lives and breathes the rest of their life in Christ. That's your identity. And furthermore, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Amen. And neither are a whole lot of other Christians in the world. And that brings us to a third thing. You don't suffer from alienation or isolation because you become a part of a family when you become a Christian. Look around you. You're in the family room right now. So why wouldn't you want this deal? To become a Christian means you have standards. To become a Christian means you have a sense of being. You know why you exist for the glory of God. You have the ultimate sense of connection because you are connected up with the omnipotent, self-existent, divine creator of the universe in a personal relationship. And you lose that sense 
of lonely alienation because you have those now who really love you in your family. And some good buddies as drug buddies, but they didn't love me. Not like you love me. Not like I love you. And that's manifested both in the local church family and in the worldwide family of God. And we experience a little part of that every year at our Here We Stand conference. That's part of the reason why we started the conference. That's why it's important for you to attend. You can see a little bit larger part of the family of God that you're a part of. So, I say to many troubled souls out there who may see or hear this message on the internet, there is a way to not exist in an antisocial way that I have laid out here before you today. If you come to Christ on his terms of repentance and faith, that way of living ceases to be necessary. Because Christianity is not just personal. It isn't just a transformed life. It is a transformed life that transforms an an environment in which that life lives. When you become a Christian, no longer do you feel alienated. No longer do you feel that everybody's out to steal your potential. No, no longer do you feel nobody understands me. You don't feel that way anymore. And you don't have to fight for your own square inch all the time. You ever met anybody like that? And all of a sudden you realize that there is a an amazing majestic, omnipotent, holy God who cares. And he cares for you. And that there is also a fantastic group of people living now who care for you. And it starts to sink in that you are now a part of something much bigger than yourself when you become a Christian. And when you as a new creation, a new self, begin to live out your new life in this dark world system, you affect the system in ways that no other kind of people ever can. And in our text for today, Paul now turns to discuss the new man in terms of his relationship to other people. He talks about a wife in verse 18. When a woman becomes a Christian, what kind of wife does she become? And then in verse 19, the men, what kind of husband do you become? A new kind of child there in verse 20. A new kind of father in verse 21, and as we'll see, that's better translated parents. We'll see that in a moment. 
And then in verses 22 to 4, 1, he covers servants and masters, which by way of application today refers to employers and employees. When a person genuinely comes to Christ, their whole orientation to society at large dramatically changes. Let me tell you, many a husband has testified to the fact that when his wife became a believer, she changed. I can personally testify to that one. Same with many wives. When that old husband became a Christian, he changed. Many a mama can give you a testimony about what happened when their child came to Christ. They changed. There's one sitting right there. She can tell you. That boy changed. Many an employer has said, man, that guy's been working. Something happened in him. He got religion. He, he works different now. Likewise can be said for the boss. What's going on with the boss? Man, something happened. That guy's good. I like him now. The fact is there are tremendous social ramifications to becoming a believer. Because a new man radiates the newness of that life into the world. Jesus put it that way, this way, salt and light. That's what he called us to be. We affect society when we behave like who we are in Christ. When we don't, we affect in a negative way and give a terrible witness for our king. Paul said we're different. We're not citizens here. We live here as lights in a very dark world. This is our calling, church, with the days we have left to breathe God's air. We are not called to just solely be this independent individual who only lives their life every day to cultivate a relationship with God independent of anybody else. And we never talk to anybody and we never affect society in any way. If you have a genuine saving relationship with God, it must have social ramifications. Today, we have a major societal problem, especially with our young people. And it's come about in this current new age of the internet and technology. People don't have one-on-one, personal, in-your-face relationships anymore. Increasingly, especially in the younger generation, everything is done online, including friendships, and social interaction with one another. And when you then take that reality and plug in immorality, emptiness, and loneliness into that reality that I spoke about earlier, it results in a world that is very different from anyone we have ever known, even just 25 years ago. Because of this, the world is is a place like it's never been before. But Christianity 
can change all of that in a person's life. And consequently, in society itself. Now, let's get to our text. I think that we would all agree that the most obvious, the most strategic, the most bottom line area where Christianity should have its most social impact would be in the most single significant institution in the world alongside the church, and that is in the home. That's where Paul starts in this text. A.T. Robertson says this, real Christianity is both a doctrine and a life. Mere belief is dead without life as proof. Real spiritual life is impossible without vital contact with God and Christ and our dealings with others become the final proof of our real connection with Christ, end quote. He's saying Christianity is dead unless it's relational. It's dead unless it has an impact on other people. And the nitty-gritty, the place where the rubber meets the road, is in the family, in the home. Think about it. How can Christianity affect society at all if it can't affect our own homes. And when it does affect the home, it absolutely will have an effect on society. Now, Paul hits this in staccato fashion. Staccato is a musical term. If you know how to read music, wives, one verse, husbands, one verse, children, one verse, fathers, one verse. Servants and masters make up the rest of the text. He, he, there's no big, long dissertation here from Paul. He's just hitting the issues with short, powerful, left jabs, brief, direct in each case, and get ready because he's going to nail the sore spots. You ready for that? Now, as a quick aside, all of these relationships that are listed here were literally in the home during the days when Paul penned this epistle. Wives, husbands, children, servants, and masters. They were all inside the home in so many homes in Paul's day. One way you can pull that into today is, you know, you have live-in nannies and live-in maids. I don't think anybody here has a live-in maid, but some people have them. Christy would love to have one. But also, application can be made, as we're going to see, with employees and employers. And we're going to get to that in general. Now, as Paul goes through these verses, I want you to understand he's not saying anything new. He just gives us the same old two principles here found throughout Scripture of authority and submission. New Testament Christianity doesn't add to that. It hasn't brought that into the world. That's always been God's plan. Somebody's in charge and somebody follows. It's always been the plan. And there's a broad spectrum of categories under which that principle falls. So, so we can't say that Christianity has introduced a new principle here. But let me show you what it has introduced. 
Number one, a new presence. There's a new presence in the home of a believer. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. First notice this. At the, look at the very end of verse 18. Look there. As is fitting in the Lord. And then look at the end of verse 20. For this is well pleasing to the Lord. Then look at verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. End of verse 24. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. End of chapter four, verse one, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. That's all in this text. And Paul, Paul makes it real clear there's a new presence here. Not just an old principle of authority and submission. And the family all of a sudden has a new power because of this new presence. Because Christ is now there and his power is there and it ought to make the family be what the family ought to be. So a new presence, a new power, and thirdly, a new purpose. Remember verse 17 of this third chapter? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything is to be done to bring glory to God. That's the ultimate purpose of human existence. That's the ultimate purpose for why you live and breathe on this earth. Not only that, there's a new pattern for the home. A new model to follow. Over in Ephesians, like I said, there's parallels here. Over in Ephesians 5, 25, men, pay attention. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the new pattern is Christ. Think about it. Think about it. Before Jesus came, they didn't have the model of Jesus to follow, did they? Now, all of that fulfills, as I said... An old principle, and that is God has intended authority and submission to exist in the home. And while those outside the church really struggle with that, it becomes possible for those who are in Christ. Now, first in the text, Paul starts with the wives, and you wives should be glad about that. You get yours first, and then we move on. Verse 18, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, in this particular case, I think the, the King James Version gets a bit better at it with this, which says, wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit. In the Lord. Now that's a simple statement. But that makes a lot of people break out in hives in our day upon hearing that statement, doesn't it? Even within the church, there are certain professing Christians who have a big problem with this verse. And as an aside in our secular culture today, we amazingly have to work through the question what is a wife? Or even what is a woman, for that matter? I would have never in my life thought that we would get to this point in my lifetime. But here we are, okay? And of course, 
leftists and feminists come along and accuse Paul of being a toxic male chauvinist, demonstrating his toxic masculinity based on this verse. But I say, when these folks, with all their special interest in identity politics, come along, and they start telling us which verses count and which verses don't in the Bible, and they try to sit in the seat of authority and, and, and play the role of God, I say, I really don't care what your opinion is. Nor do I care what you think of mine. Now, I'm going to speak the truth in love. I'm be wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, as I'm supposed to be. But the authority in all matters of life and faith and practice is the word of God, period. So come at me, bro. That's what I say to them. I'm standing here in this pulpit. The word of God is my authority. I don't care what you say in the culture. I don't care what you think about wives submit to your husbands. Now, some folks say, well, well, Brother Philip, what you have to do is you have to interpret that verse culturally. That, 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 that was for that day back then. Surely today, with this modern day we live in, we don't, we don't think like this anymore. So let me ask you, husband loves your wife, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Is that cultural too? I don't need to love my wife because that's cultural. That's not how all this works, folks. Did you know there are pastors in our country who omit the words submit and obey from all their wedding ceremonies in order to ask, acquiesce to the spirit of this age? Not me. That's why I always tell them, you want me to marry you. You better listen up to what my conditions are before you make that decision having me up there. Let me make this simple statement that I hope will help you before we keep going here. Your family life the realities in your home are never going to be perfect this side of heaven. But if you follow the plan of the family that we find here in the manufacturer's handbook, it will be the best that it possibly can be for your family. Is that simple enough to understand? And the main thing we need to understand is that God has a clear and very easy to understand order of how he wants the structure of the family to be set up. I don't know why people get all tied in knots about this. And you can either follow his way or you can make up your own way. I report, you decide, okay? Now, first of all, you need to understand there's a difference between the idea of obedience and the idea of submission. Those are two different things. Notice obedience in this passage is reserved for children and servants. And even this obedience is not an authoritative, overbearing, brow-beating type of relationship. 
The word for submission, or look here in the New American Standard, or be subject to, is reserved for wives, not those other relationships. And it has more of a cooperative concept to it. So, wives be subject to, is not the idea that the husband is firing out orders that the wife needs to obey. It's the idea that the wife has a spirit of submissiveness. Now, let me get into what I'm saying here. Like like I said, the King James, I, I love how the King James says, to your own husband. That's very personal for the wives. That emphasizes a very, a very personal, intimate, inward, vital relationship. You submit only to him. You submit to nobody else. You submit to no other man because this is your man. You're not submitting to some indifferent, detached authority here. This is your own husband, yours alone. And secondly, ladies, listen, that are married here today, submission does not mean inferiority. That's how the leftist and the feminist interpret this verse. Don't do that. Ladies, this does not mean that you are inferior to your husband, not at all. Jesus, the God-man, was not inferior to God the Father in any way, but in his humanity, he submitted to the Father. You understand? So inferiority is not the idea here. Women have great dignity in the New Testament. Paul emphasizes it in First and Second Timothy and Titus. There were women with great strategic places in ministry in the early church. So we have to start with, with a right understanding of what submission being subject to really means. And, and another thing, just kind of as an aside, submission is never absolute. It doesn't mean that you submit to everything all the time under every possible situation. Let me give you an example, Peter and John. There are times when you have to decide whether we ought to obey men or we ought to obey God, right? If your husband asks you to do something contrary to the word of God, of course, in that case, you never submit to him. And then also, most importantly, your submission is done in love. Wives, this is your husband. You love him. He loves you. And this is God's pattern. This is God's design and structure for the marriage relationship. Why as a Christian would you want to come up with any other way? God's way is always the right way. His way is not hard to understand for the family in Scripture. And then confirming that, look at the end of verse 18. If you're wondering about this, it says, as is fitting in the Lord. Now that ought to seal the deal for you right there. Now let's get to the husbands. All right, man? Verse 19, husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Let me, let me, 
Let me give you how the Greek here just literally flows. You husbands keep on continually loving your wives and stop being bitter toward them. Now, in this one, there's two commands. Keep on loving your wives. And sadly, in so many cases, that stops happening in a marriage. And when that does, what comes in its place is bitterness. Men, you love your wives before you married them. You love your wives when you married them. And you are to keep on loving them nonstop to the end. Whoever goes first. And I've taught you before about what actual love is. I'm talking about love defined by God and his word. Love defined by God and his word is not an emotion. Don't don't fall for Hollywood's depiction of love, please. True love is activity. True love is the act of self-sacrifice. That's where the rubber meets the road in any marriage. Now, Christy's going to hate this illustration, but it's simple, okay? Christy loves plants. She has a green thumb. She really loves them, okay? I could care less if we ever had a plant. We could have a rock garden in front of the house, and I'm good with it, okay? But the, the plants require a lot of things. They're needy, okay? And, and while she does have the green thumb, and she does, the actual labor of a lot of the plant care is right here. Would you, would you disagree with that, or you would agree with that, okay? So why do I do that? Because it's important to her. She loves her plants. It doesn't matter that I hate plants. or I'm not going to hate plants, but I mean, it's no big deal to me, but she loves them. Okay. And so I'm going to take them out and I'm going to water them in the big 5,000 pound corn plant. I'm going to move it in when it gets cold and you get the picture. Now the word for embittered emphasizes a harshness of temper. Emphasizes also an attitude of resentment that leads to misery, which so often leads to divorce. You can also understand the word as exasperate or irritate. Don't irritate your wife. Sometimes I seem to carry that out to perfection in my marriage. Just ask her. This word is only used three other times in the New Testament and all three of the other times are in in, uh, Revelation. And bitterness there carries the idea of something very distasteful or very unenjoyable. John MacArthur says what Paul is really saying is, don't call her honey and act like vinegar. Okay? A husband is a leader and a lover of his wife. I like what Howard Hendricks says, in particular in reference to professing Christians. A lot of frustrated sergeants are running around with biblical clubs in their hands shouting, I'm the head of my house, and they're the only ones who are convinced. (laughs) And the reason 
they are not functioning properly there, he says, is because there's no love. So keep on continually loving your wife with the biblical understanding of love. Deep affection that works itself out in action, particularly the action of self-sacrifice that sees your wife also as a sister in the Lord, the, the one that God has charged you with taking care of, men. Your, your best friend, the most important human being in your life. Not being bitter toward her. Not being ugly toward her, but loving and honoring and cherishing. Now, even as I say this, you know this. Men, this is something we have to work at, right? And that work is never done this side of heaven. You have to cultivate it. You have to continually, purposefully stay at it. And when you fail, you ask forgiveness. And you make up. That's my favorite part. And then you just keep rolling. Right? And for the wives, remember, please remember this. There's nothing humiliating about submission. There's nothing degrading or inconsistent with true intellectual, moral, spiritual equality that you have with your husband. And both sides have to work at this for this thing to work. You have to cultivate this from both sides continually. Let me tell you something. This is no easier for me and Christy than it is for anybody else. Oh, to be a fly on the wall at my house. Please do not put us on a pedestal that we can't keep our balance on. Okay? Yes. Yes. We are charged as leading by example, as pastor of this church and pastor's wife. We, we are charged with leading by example. And yes, we do have a happy home. And there is love in our home, but guess what? We have to work at it for that to happen. We have to work at it. And so do you. All right, now, Again, you got to listen a little faster here. I got a bit more to cover. And uh, trust me, I all day Friday, I tried to condense this. Okay. Verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Now, we don't have any children in here right now. So, but, but this is important instruction for those of you who have children, those of you who have grandchildren. First, what defines a child? What's the cutoff point? Well, in today's culture, in some cases, it rolls way up into the ages of 30 and 40. Still at home, living on mama's dime. But basically, it's a general word for anybody who is under parental guidance in the home. And of course, that's different ages for different kids. Some Kids roll out earlier of the home than others. 
But there's one simple command here. Be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. There's nothing new here. You go all the way back to Exodus, right? It's all the way through Scripture. Let me tell you something. God is very, very serious about this right here. You want, you want to see an example? Proverbs 30. There's a section in Proverbs 30. You can go read the whole thing for yourself that includes this. Look at verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. That's pretty serious, kids. It's very interesting how in Romans 1, when it characterizes the vices of paganism, one of them is disobedience to parents. When 2 Timothy catalogs the evils of the last days, one of the evils is disobedience to parents. Again, the command is simple, to be obedient to your parents in all things. Period. All things. But just like with the wife's submission, there's one limitation. It's limited to that which doesn't violate God's standard, right? Dad asks you to do something contrary to the word of God, and you're not obeying there. But look again at the end of verse 20. When this is properly followed by a child, this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Same purpose. The reason to do this is because this is the way God set it up. This is God's way. This is God's standard. Now, verse 21 starts out with fathers and without a long explanation of the wording, and it is better translated parents. This is for both. Parents, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Literally, stop irritating your children so that they will not lose heart. Uh, In the American, stop nagging your kids to death about every little thing. This also refers to the irritation that comes by the emotional explosion that sometimes happens on the part of parents. What parent hasn't been there, right? Now, I could give you a lot of detail here, a long list and the material that I use, but for time's sake, I'm going to give you a few rapid fire things on how a parent can irritate a child. And God knows I made millions of mistakes of a parent as a parent, and I have no problem owning every one of them. Okay. I did. Let me tell you, for starters, you can irritate your child by being overprotective, too strict, draw the lines too narrow. And that leads them to feel like you don't believe in them. Leads them to feel like you don't trust them. No matter what they do to earn that trust, they never give it. And then at some point they give up and say, what's the use? And there's usually disastrous consequences in raising a kid like that. I've seen that in the church especially. As soon as that kid turns 18, gets out the house, they go all wild. Flip side, too much liberty. No rules, no discipline, no consequences. Man, you leave a kid out there like that, guaranteed disaster. If they don't have any boundaries, if they don't have any consequences for bad behavior. Here's another one. Comparing your kids to other kids. Why can't you be like Irwin over there? He always does his homework. Man, that's bad. Huh? Here's another one. Discouragement. 
Don't ever reward them for anything. Don't ever encourage them or tell them how proud you are of them. That'll irritate your kid. Criticize them constantly. Really, I mean, there's a long list here, but you get the picture. And as parents, none of us do, do, does this perfectly, right? I mean, in fact, we all get a lot wrong. Most of us in this room have already raised our children. But if we strive to follow God's pattern that's clear, even as we struggle in our flesh, again, it'll always be the best that it can be. Now, lastly, we come to verses 22, 25, which could really be the whole sermon in itself. And so forgive me for the brevity here. Really what happened to me is I spent too much time on the front end of this message and I got here and I was like, oh my goodness. But, but you've heard this from me before, so I'm just gonna hit it kind of quick. Verse 22, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, for time's sake, I could go through the whole historical slaves and masters. We've kind of been through that before, but for matters for today, this, this applies to today as the employee-employer relationship. And this is real simple. If you are an employee, you are to give, obey everything from your employer, exception always when it violates God's word, Put that to the side and notice, not with external service. Not just when the boss is looking as if you're just there to please him. But with sincerity of heart, it says, because the way you should look at doing your job, Christian, is that you're pleasing God with your job. Notice at the end, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Now, I'm here to tell you that's how I look at doing my job every day and always have as a bivocational pastor for the last 22 plus years. And I can promise you this. Don't take this as boasting, but I can promise you anybody I've ever worked for, I'm that guy you want on your team, they will tell you in the secular working world not because I'm so great of a worker, but because I take what the Bible is saying here seriously, very seriously. Whether I'm dumping out a 55-gallon drum of garbage into the dumpster or, or stirring up the motor oil, I'm doing it as unto the Lord heartily. That's how I look at my job. And that always makes for an employee you really want to have. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. If you work like this, the Lord's going to pay you back one day. R.G. Lee, he preached that great sermon. Payday, someday. Now you might be underpaid and overworked right now. Can I get a witness? But if you do your work heartily as for the Lord, one day, guess what? God is going to equalize. I promise you this. I don't care how hard your job is. If you'll take up this attitude, 
Negative circumstances at work will not impact you nearly as much if you take up this attitude with your day-to-day secular work. Not only that, verse 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences for the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. If you don't work with way, there will be consequences for you, Christian. God will discipline you. And notice he's impartial. Just because you're a Christian, you don't get off the hook here. You don't get some kind of special favor. If you're lazy on the job, you got more than your earthly boss to worry about. That's what he's saying here. And then lastly, chapter four, verse one. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. If you're a boss at work, you're not off the hook either here as a Christian. I mean, we can break this one down real quick for the employers, for the bosses. Do unto others as you would have the Lord do unto you. Be fair to your workers. Treat your employees right. If you do that, you'll have a better employee. And don't forget, you too have a boss, the boss king in heaven. So as we close, when you put this whole chapter together. It's about a new man making a new home. If Christianity is going to affect our world, it will affect the world from the vantage point that it affects the home. And by way of application for our time today, the workplace, the home and the workplace. And it all centers around what we learned at the beginning of this third chapter. If you're risen with Christ, live like it. Put off the old man, put on the new man. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the results will be, you will be a new wife. You will be a new husband. You will be a new child. You will be a new employee. You will be a new employer. And those things are all examples of a life that lives for the purpose that God intended for us to live, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very practical, practical message these practical verses, Christian living. Lord, we want to just confess right away. We we are convicted. We listen to these verses and we think about our failures and the struggle that we have with our own flesh. And Lord, I, I just pray that your people here and myself included, we could just balance all this together. Justification, sanctification, just balance that this is a struggle that you've intended to for us to go through in our sanctification as we grow in our knowledge and our understanding and our relationship with you. And that's worked out in the way that we treat others as we're heading for that final destination when we are no longer here because we're not citizens here. Our citizenship is in another place, the heavenly place. But while you have us here, help us, Father, to take heed to what the Apostle Paul has taught us today and help it to make application in our lives. To your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.